Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us slash sermons. We'd love to have you join us for our worship service on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road, Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. Good morning again. If you would, take your Bibles and open them to the book of James. And as you turn there, before we look into God's Word, we're going to have a brief moment of just kind of individual prayer. We talked a little bit last week about widows and orphans when we got to the end of James chapter 1. And uh, outside of that door over there where the drinking fountains are, um, there is a, a wall has a bunch of pictures on it. And those are pictures of children uh, waiting to be for foster care and, and children in the system that way. And it's just a way to pray for them. And uh, this is it's International or National Adoption Month, and so we just kind of focus on that. That's a big part of what goes on here at the church. Michelle's down here in the front. She you know helps uh, get children with adoptive parents, and it's just this is a time to remember that as we go through this. Yeah, we looked at it last week. Sometimes if we're not careful, okay, we check that. Let's move on to the next thing. But remember what it said: pure and undefiled religion is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That never ends, ever. And it's one of the things that we're called to do. So I just want you to bow your heads for a moment and pray for those, especially children, who for no fault of their own are in a really tough spot right now. Lord, this morning as we pause for just a few moments before we look in your word to think of so many you know, young people that are in tough spots, Lord, even those that maybe aren't even in the system, but could be difficult home lives, difficult situations they find themselves in. And so, Lord, I pray that as a church, not just here, but believers throughout our world, um, step into the lives of those that are hurting, and Lord, that they make a difference. In your name I pray, amen. Now, we're in James chapter 2, so make sure you turn to chapter 2 of James. How many of you, and I don't normally ask you to raise your hands, but I want you to do this for my sake. How many of you have brothers or had at some point with brothers or sisters? Okay, most people. There's a few, only children. Okay, keep your hands up for a minute. Okay, you got brothers or sisters. How many of you, at one point when you were a child, said to your parents, or, or felt this way at least, that mom and dad favored your brother or your sister? Keep your hands up. See a couple hands go down. Liars. Okay, the liars, I know you can put your hands down now. Yes, those of us that had siblings, and uh, now that I'm a parent, I'm well aware of this. There are times when, you know, we just think, what are they, why, do they, why do they hate me? Why have they singled me out versus, every, you know, the, the other two in my case? Now that I have kids, they say that. I mean, the truth is, as parents, yes, we probably do occasionally favor one over the other. Maybe we're, we're imperfect people. But favoritism or treating people differently is one of those things we see throughout society, don't we? I mean, all of us have, well, not all of us, I won't say that, but if you've ever been pulled over by the police and you're sitting there in your car and you look at the blue lights behind you and you're waiting for the officer to walk up and you're watching all of the other cars whip past and you go, really? None of them? You couldn't have gotten any of them? They're all going too fast too. Why me? Why did you single me out? 
could be, you know, the way the media treats our favorite politician. It could be the way the, the announcer treats our team when we're watching sports. It, it could be a thousand things. We all know. We've seen it. We experience it showing partiality, showing favor, uh, uh, elevating one group over another group. And here when we get to James chapter 2, there's, there's a bit of a change. It says right there at the beginning, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith. In our Lord Jesus Christ. That show no partiality really sets off what we're going to see throughout most of this chapter. Even next week when we get to probably what we would call, if you want to call it this, the most controversial part of the book of James, faith and works. Really the foundation of that is how we treat people, partiality. Now when it says show no partiality, it doesn't mean we don't occasionally, there aren't reasons that we don't treat some people differently than others. Obviously I treat my children differently than I treat strangers' children. I treat my wife differently than I treat random people I meet on the street. You have a relationship with your boss. There are certain relationships or ways we interact with people in which, yes, we have to behave differently. And we understand that. This is just talking about, in general, as we come across people, the tendency to use the world's standards of what is or isn't important, what is or isn't influential or needed in another person, to, to favor that as opposed to how God says we should treat people. And so, as we look at this, it seems, okay, pretty straightforward. Don't show partiality. I get that. Why has James spent a significant amount of time on what seems to be a fairly basic teaching? I think part of it is because there's way more to this topic and this subject than meets the eye, the surface level of just don't treat people with partiality. It really speaks to the heart of our faith. As I studied this this week and looked at it, and, and we'll go through it this morning, there really is a sense is, is if we aren't treating people the way God tells us to treat people, it often reveals that we really don't trust what God says is important, what God elevates. It really speaks to the heart of our faith. And this particular issue is immensely important in, in just our day-to-day lives. Without a doubt, the biggest story of 2020 is going to be COVID-19. I don't think anybody would argue We will never forget COVID-19 forever. But right up there, close to it, would probably be, I mean, you can maybe make the case for the election, but right up there with it would be the civil unrest, right? I mean, we saw protests, we saw riots, if you want to call it that. We saw all sorts of different things take place in our society, and what were most of them at the heart? What were they about? The way we treat people. How some people view how they've been treated by this group of people and this group of people, how they feel this group of people has treated them, and, and, and systemic this and that. And the other thing, at the heart of it, is really what we see here. I mean, let's face it, that's what we, we dealt with. And so when we see this passage of Scripture, it's a big deal. And one of the things as Christians, when we see everything that's going on in our society and everything that's happening, the first question we should ask is, what does God tell us? How should we react? What is our response to these types of things? And I think James chapter 2 is probably one of the most foundational New Testament passages about this topic. James spends a great deal of time talking about partiality, treating other people. He talks about how it's foundational to our faith. And so I think it's very important that we understand what he's talking about here. I think what James builds off of here goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus In Leviticus chapter 19, it it says this, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. 
Notice what the, the writer there in Leviticus says, not partial to the poor. Actually, this is from the Word of God. Partial to the poor, defer to the great. There's a reason why in our society, Lady Justice holds the scales. What does she have on her eyes? A blindfold. Don't defer to the poor or the great. The idea is, is justice has nothing to do with your station in life. It has to do with what is, what is right and what is wrong. But it goes on to say, verse 16, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. And this, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This passage in Leviticus becomes the foundation we see in other parts of the Old Testament, even what Jesus talks about, love your neighbor as yourself. We'll get to that as we go through James. As you look at James chapter 2, much of what he writes here almost matches up perfectly with what we see in Leviticus. Clearly, it's important. There's a lot to it. It's more than just, okay, be nice to people. So we're going to read James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, going to verse 13. We're going to talk about how God teaches us to treat people and what it really reveals. I'm going to ask you in the honor of God's word to stand. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read on down. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it teaches us and reveals about our hearts. Lord, I pray we take it to heart this morning. In your name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we're talking, as we go through the book of James, we're talking about how he's talking about mature faith. We've talked about trials and dealing with trials in the first part of James chapter 1. We talked about last week, you know, how to receive the Word of God or how the reception of the Word of God. We've got to hear it and do it and understand it. And in chapter 2, James kind of changes gears now and he talks about partiality and how we treat people. And so this is one of the key aspects, of, and it really goes through most of this chapter, maturing faith. And the first point he makes is to show no partiality. Pretty straightforward, right? Because it's right there in the first verse. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to believers, and he says, don't show partiality as you interact with people. And then he gives this, this illustration. He talks about somebody walking into an assembly, it'd be like a church service, 
and he's rich, and it says, you know, if he has a gold ring, it actually says gold ringed. They would often wear multiple rings on their hands to show how well off they were. And he just, it's a basic, obvious, we get it. There's a rich guy that walks in, everybody sees him, they know he's rich, and then there's a poor guy. And this probably isn't much different today. Maybe the, the, the attire is different, but don't we kind of make judgments about people when we first see them? Almost immediately. Now, and it's funny, I, I remember in my own life, I used to, when I worked in a hotel right after college, I had to, part of my job was to go and try and get businesses to use the hotel for their conferences. And one time, they, they sent me back, to, I was outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, they sent me back to Erie, which is where I was from, to try and drum up business there. They sent me with this other guy. Well, this other guy, he's like, well, you're from here, where should we go? I was like, well, the biggest company here at the time was a company called, well, General Electric. They had a big plant. So let's give it a shot. So we pull up to the gate, security guards there, and we're dressed, suits, we had trench coats, I mean, we looked, you know, the part. We told him over there for, he's like, okay, send us in. Well, we start walking around the place, we're walking in all sorts of areas, and everybody we came across, they're like, what are you doing here? Security guards or whatever, we would say we're trying to, you know, see if anybody needs a hotel. Okay, and they, we eventually got to the office up to like the seventh or eighth floor. We go to this lady, and we tell her what we're there for, and she just kind of looks at us and says, hold on a minute, go go sit over in this room. So they set us in this room, and we're just talking. All of a sudden, like, the security guard walks in, he just stands there, ramrod straight, and another lady walks in, and we're like, they're going to shoot us. Well, what's going on? Why what? And the lady said, you know, you're just, she asked us some questions, and we said why we were there, and she's like, okay, you know, yeah, I get it. You have no business getting this far. You should never have even gotten on the property. You're just here doing a cold call. And well, yeah, that's what it is. And please don't kill us. And, you know, she, but at the end, she said this, and I'll never forget. She said, it's amazing what can happen if you act like you know what you're doing and you're wearing a suit. And I was like, that's right. You're good. Yeah. I was like, you should give us some business. They didn't, by the way. But, but all of those people that saw us, they just made a snap judgment. And James says that here, show no partiality, and then he gives, this is just a basic example. But then he goes on in the rest of these verses to give the reasons why we shouldn't show partiality. The first one is because partiality displays doubt in God. Look at verse 4. After this little example that he gives, he says this in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him. Now, when he says there in verse 4, have you then not made distinctions? That word distinctions in Greek, we've seen it one other time in the book of James. We've already seen it back in verse 6 of chapter 1. Verse 6 of chapter 1, he's talking about if you lack wisdom, ask God. Verse 6, it says this, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. That word doubting is the same exact Greek word translated in the next chapter as distinctions. So why is it doubting in one area and distinctions in the other? Well, because at the heart of that word is the idea when we make distinctions, we are doubting one side versus the other. That's why after he says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves, judges with evil thoughts, he says, listen, what has God done? God has said, I've made the poor of the world to be rich in faith. Now, he's not elevating the poor to say there's some, just because you're poor, there's something unique about it. You know, he's saying because you're poor, you get to the point where you at least, if you have faith, you have the thing that's important. You are rich in what is actually important in this world, and that is to have faith. He's already mentioned something to a certain extent back in chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation. 
And let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. He says, the poor guy, all he has, if he has faith, is faith in God. But that, in God's economy, is far more important than anything this world can offer you. The richest man in the world has nothing on the poorest man if the poorest man has faith. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they go back and forth. And finally, Jesus basically says, listen, you've got to sell everything you have, give it to the poor. What did the rich man do? Walked away, dejected. Why? He rich. He had gotten so comfortable that the, the riches were what was important to him. That was the most important thing to have. It protected him in this life. And the disciples then questioned Jesus. They started asking him, and Jesus said, listen, it's easier for uh, the, a camel to do what? To go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's not impossible. He goes on to talk about how, well, God, all things are possible. But what he's saying there is, listen, when somebody's rich, when somebody has a lot, often what happens is they become so dependent on that. That's, that's what they use to get through life. With the poor man, he's got his faith. But what God teaches us is that's what's important. But you see, when we do what James just explained, when he said, when we defer to the rich, when we look to the, the powerful, those that have things in this world, and we treat them better than we treat the disenfranchised, the lowly, the poor, or whatever, what we're saying is we're agreeing with the world. This is what's important. And we're rejecting what God says is important. We're doubting him. We're doubting what the word of God teaches about the economy of this world. So the first point James says to him, he says, don't show partiality. It, it, it causes you to, it displays your doubt in God. The second thing he says is because it makes no sense. It's stupid. Look at the next verse. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the one who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? It's very sad when he just, it's, but you have dishonored the poor man. You look back at that example he gives in verse 3. He says, you sit here in a good place to the rich guy, while well, he says to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. You know, we don't have them. Back in the day, in the 1800s in churches, they would have pews you could pay for, and they were the prominent people that had a lot of money sat in the good spots. We don't do that anymore. Now it's, if you get here early, you can sit in the back. Not picking on the back row, I'm just saying, you know. But you would put the rich in a place of honor. The poor, you say, you stand over there. Even worse than that, you sit on the floor. You ever been in a room where everybody gets a chair and the only thing that's left is the ottoman? You know, the little footstool, and you say, well, it's better than the floor. You can at least sit there. But imagine if you say, no, I'm going to put my feet up. You get the floor. And I think about this. What James is saying, listen, this, he talks about they come into your assembly. They come into a church where maybe they've heard this place is different than the, everywhere else I've been. These people say they've had this, this meeting with this guy named Jesus who, who's radically changed their life. Takes the poor and elevates them. He's somebody that talks about the forgiveness of sins. I want to be around these people. And as soon as they walk in, within a few moments, they're told, go over here. And it's a, an indication to the poor, this place is no different than everywhere else I've been. They treat this group of people better than they're going to treat me. How is this different than everywhere else I've gone? He says, you've dishonored the poor man. And then this is the part that says makes no sense. And the rich are the ones who oppress you, and they drag you into court. You're sitting here trying to defer to the rich guy, and the rich guy, when it's convenient for him, he's going to try and take even more money from you. He's going to oppress you. Now, James talks more about the rich and oppression, and especially some cultural things later on in this book, but he's 
pointing out oftentimes the very people that we kind of kiss up to, they don't want to have anything to do with us when we're not convenient. It's amazing how often we see this. We see this with evangelical leaders. They can be politicians. You sit there and scratch your head and you say, these people would have nothing to do with you except right now, and you're just kissing up to them. But it's not just politicians. It's famous people, actors and actresses and media types. How many of us have watched somebody that's a fairly famous Christian pastor or musician and they're on a talk show or whatever? And there they're, they're asked a question about the faith and they blow it. They hem and they haw and they do everything they can to what? Stay in the good graces of people that really don't care at all about them. How many times were we disappointed and you go, you had an opportunity to speak biblical truth and you blew it. Kind of the point James is making. You snuggle up to these people, and the moment you're inconvenient to them, they'll ditch you. Why do you do it? And then the last little point in this first part, partiality elevates those who blaspheme. Verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Because they favor wealth, because they favor the things of this world, they blaspheme God. Do you remember the apostle Paul before he was Paul? He was Saul. And as Saul, he persecuted the church. That's what he did. That was his, he would go out, burn down their churches, kill them, do whatever. And as he would, would, would do that, then he was on the way to Damascus to do this even more. And there, Jesus Christ, as this bright light shines on him. And Jesus speaks to him. Jesus says, Paul, why do you persecute? He doesn't say the church. He doesn't say Christians. He says me. Because ostensibly from what Paul is doing here, by persecuting the church, he's blaspheming God. He's persecuting Christ. Sometimes as Christians, as we're living our lives and we see the world be opposed to us, speak ill of us, blaspheme us, listen, it's not really us, it's him. And he says, why would you want to cozy up to these people that blaspheme? Why do you want to be associated with them? And so he says, show no partiality. This is the negative. And he's like, why would you do this? Why? What goes on? Then in the second part of this section, he starts talking about the positive. Then what should we do? Verse 8, love others as you love yourself. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. What does he mean by the royal law? I believe what he simply means by the royal law is that the overriding law that all of the other ones base off of is this one. You remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On this hinge the law and the prophets. In other words, if you could compl- love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly, and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly, you'd be perfect. Okay, there's everything else flows from those two. That's the, the creme de la creme. Everything's based off of that. Even the Ten Commandments, the first four, about our relationship with God. The second six are about our relationship with other people. The problem is, of course, none of us do that perfectly or even really come all that close. But he says this is the standard. Well, we saw this, remember, back in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. I always find it interesting. He doesn't say, you know, you have to love yourself first. That's kind of a 20... 21st century American idea. Oh, you got to love yourself or love other people. The Bible just assumes that you love yourself. Okay? You love yourself. Love others as you love yourself. But then he has, beginning in verse 9, this whole thing about the law. Kind of a, a pretty powerful theological statement here. Why? Verse 9, he says, But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, convicted by the law as transgressors. 
Okay, it's a sin. Then verse 10, which is a fairly famous verse, a verse that, like I say, is a pretty powerful theological statement, but it's often misunderstood. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it or of all of it. And then he makes a comparison with adultery and murder. Now, when it says there in verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it, it is not saying all sins are exactly the same. Not saying that. It is saying any sin that you commit makes you a transgressor of the law. Let me give you an example in just day-to-day life. If I go out and jaywalk and I get caught, I have now become a lawbreaker. If I go out and murder 10 people, not going to do that. But if I went out and murdered 10 people, I would also be a lawbreaker. Either one of those things make, puts me on the wrong side of the law. Are they the same? Do they have the same consequences? Do they have the same significance? No. But they do make me a lawbreaker. So showing partiality, committing adultery, committing murder, all of those, are not. there's different consequences even in the Old Testament for each one of those. But either one of those makes you a transgressor of the law. Now, why is that important? Why is he making this particular statement here? I believe he's making that statement because what is God's standard when it comes to obedience to be righteous before him? Is it get pretty close? Is it just, you know, be better than the other guy? Is it to be like a Pharisee? Or is it absolute positive perfection? In Romans, Paul said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The standard is absolute perfection. If you mess up once, it's over. Whether you show partiality, and he uses some pretty big ones here to compare it to. Murder, adultery, those are some of the big ones that we think of. He said that there's different consequences for those in the and the impact on society, but either one of them makes you fall short of God's glory. And what's important is once we understand that, that all of us are on the same level, that's what we need in order to treat others as we treat ourselves. To begin to see people from God's standard that everybody you meet is somebody who falls short of the glory of God that needs to hear about Christ. They need to be forgiven. It doesn't matter whether you're black or you're white, Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, male or female. All of the distinctions that have become so elevated in our society, and everybody's ranting and raving as Christians, we look and say, are they transgressors of the law? Yes, check. Do they need Christ? Yes, check. Go get involved in this world. The people in James' time, the first century, was probably one of the most 